Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Epistle of James. We'll be discussing how James and the Apostle Paul are in agreement, not in conflict, as they give different perspectives about faith, making clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not by your works, and that true saving faith will be evidenced by your works. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Epistle of James chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Okay, let me open us up with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this group and the opportunity to gather together and study your word as we continue to study James this morning. Father, I just ask that you help lead this discussion. There's so much confusion over James, and particularly today as we talk about faith without works is dead. Really help clarify that for all of us so that we have a true understanding of what the real gospel of Jesus Christ is. We're so thankful for your grace. We thank you for giving us our faith and sending your son to die for us and to pay the debt for our sins. And we know there's nothing we can do to earn that or contribute to it. We're so thankful. All we have to do is receive the gift. And it's an incredible gift. And you're just an awesome God. We thank you. I ask that you speak through me and anyone who speaks up today. Just guide our discussion and put on our hearts what we need to hear this morning. Continue to change us into the people you want us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in James 2. There's a lot of material in James, but this is probably what most people remember about the epistle of James, as we'll talk about today where he talks about faith without works is dead. And I'm going to try my best to clarify that for you all because it can be confusing. And as I mentioned before in the last couple of weeks as we've been making our way through James, there is a group of people that view this epistle of James as being counter or contradicting what Paul has said and even what Jesus has said. I'll show you some of that that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. And yet we come to this, and we'll see as we study today, there's some verses that people will look at and say, no, see, it's clear that it's faith plus works, and that's how you earn your salvation. It's faith plus works. And of course, as I've said many times, that's not the gospel of Jesus, because number one, If we could have earned it, then Jesus didn't need to come and die. Number two, by maintaining that, you're basically saying Jesus did a great thing coming and dying for our sins, but he didn't quite get the job done, and I've got to help. I've got to contribute. He wasn't quite good enough to get it done on his own, which is not the gospel. And so we're going to peel that onion back a little bit today and try to have a better understanding. And as you'll see, What we're looking at, and I'll describe this when we get into it a little further, but they're both looking at faith, and Paul is looking at it from one perspective, and it was the audience he was talking to, which were basically Judaizers who were saying, yeah, you got to place your faith in Jesus Christ. These were Jewish people, but you also still have to maintain and do the Jewish law. You have to get circumcised. You have to do all the Jewish law things. And Paul was very clear saying, no, that's not the case. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And I'll show you some verses on that that we've looked at before. 
And what James is addressing is easy believism, which is, I got my ticket punched. I just kind of like said a little simple prayer. I'm good. I got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. I can live life however I want to live. And what James is saying is that you may not have true faith. Throughout this epistle, he's been giving us ways that we can test our faith, ways that we can have evidence for ourselves and for others that we do indeed have saving faith. Because if you have saving faith and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you are going to have good works. And we'll talk more about that as we go. All right, I wasn't planning on giving that long of an introduction, so i got to get going here. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says, my brethren, he's talking to fellow believers. And remember, James was not an apostle. James is Jesus's half-brother. That's who's writing this. Okay, so he's saying, do not have this attitude of personal favoritism. Favoritism is a sin. It's a serious sin. And he's going to give an example of what favoritism looks like. Partiality or even lack thereof. James is saying that is evidence of saving faith. When you show partiality all the time, you're not living your life the way Jesus intended. Judging others on a superficial basis, Jesus never did that. He never showed partiality to anyone. You can even look at Jesus. There he was born into a poor family. You can look at his heritage. He had some questionable people in his heritage, people like Rahab the harlot, who we'll read about later today if we get that far. Uh, You had the incestuous Tamar in his line. With Jesus, there aren't these earthly distinctions that we sometimes use to play favorites. And let me just show you one verse real quick. I'll go over there from Old, Old Testament in Deuteronomy. I'm going to go over to Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. And it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So God and Jesus did not show partiality. They don't play favorites. And so let's look at this example that James gives us. I'm in chapter 2, verse 2 of James. For if a man comes into your assembly, so what is he talking about assembly here? Remember, at that time, these are Jewish Christians. They were primarily meeting in synagogues, but that may have been somebody's house. But he's describing a church assembly here. So it could have been a synagogue. It could have been a home church. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, Think about some of the first Christians. They were very poor Jews. Many of them were rejected by their family for leaving the Jewish religion. They were rejected for their faith. There were some wealthy Jewish converts. Joseph of Arimathea comes to my mind. Nicodemus, both of the Sanhedrin, they were probably wealthy. But by and large, they were mainly poor people. And so he's describing here in this church assembly, you've got a wealthy man coming in dressed all real nice, and you have a poor man coming in in very dirty clothes. In verse 3, it says, And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. 
and you say to the poor man, you stand over there like at the back or sit down by my footstool. Like this is total disrespect. He won't even offer his footstool to this poor guy to sit on. He's showing total disrespect to him. And, you know, assuming this is a usher in the church, you know, maybe trying to show somebody where to sit. He's not showing any respect to the poor person. And he's probably looking at the rich person like, we're going to sit you over here because we can probably get some money from you. We're going to really serve you instead of serving the poor, which we were called to do, just going from their perception. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So treating people based on your earthly perceptions, that's a sin. Let me just show you real quick a verse. I'll flip over there. It's just a short verse over in Philippians, Philippians 2.3. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So that's how we're supposed to treat people. And we're going to get into this a little further in a minute, but just loving our neighbors. That's what Jesus called us to do and not using these perceptions that we see of people. And we all do it all the time. And that's what James is talking about here. And when you do that all the time, that's evidence that you may not have saving faith is what he's saying. Treating people routinely like that, there's a problem. Verse 5, I'm back over in James. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. So he's talking to believers. And this listen, he's sort of saying, think about it. Just think about it, my fellow believers. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So this future kingdom, we as believers, we're rich because we've been given this inheritance We're heirs of the kingdom of God, and God chose us for that. James is saying that he chose the poor for this kingdom. I love this verse. I'm going to take you over to, uh, let me take you over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So it's not saying that if you're rich, there are examples of that, but by and large, it's the poor people. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Because typically, people that have all these material things, they think they got it by themselves. They're sort of self-dependent. And it goes on and says, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. And let me go on. It says, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So all boasting should glorify God instead of boasting about ourselves, which is what we typically see and many of us do from time to time. And James is saying that's not what it's all about. We should act in the manner that God has chosen us. There wasn't anything we did to contribute to it. It's by his grace 
and we represent him here, and therefore we ought to act like that. Verse 6, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? What's he talking about here? Well, I'll give you an example. Let me go over to Acts. I'll look at Acts 12. This is some of the things that were going on at this time. I'm in Acts 12. I'll begin in verse 1. It says, now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, so this is the apostle James, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people." So they were being persecuted for their belief in Jesus Christ. That is what was going on. The Jewish leaders, the rich people, the leaders were persecuting them as well. And so let's go back over to James. And he's saying it's really the rich who are blaspheming your faith and opposing you. Verse 7, he says, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? meaning we're called by God. We're called to become children of God. You can look at that over in Romans 8, 28 through 30. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, which is, he states it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So that statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's from Leviticus 19, 18. And that's what Jesus had told us. He says that we are to love others. We're to be like an heir of the kingdom. That's what this royal law is. The law of Jesus is to love others. He says in verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now, James is not saying that if you commit one sin, you've committed them all. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, All sins have the same penalty. Some have more consequences than others, but if you've committed one sin, that separates you from God. One sin means you deserve death. So if you've committed one sin, you're as guilty as if you committed them all. He's also addressing a point that the Jews at that time believed that you sort of looked at all your deeds, you looked at your good deeds, and you looked at your bad deeds, and if your good deeds outweighed, you had more good deeds than bad deeds, well, then you had a credit balance, and so you were good with God. That's kind of how they looked at it. That's how many people look at it today. It's like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm better than average, and hopefully God judges on the curve, and I'm going to get in that way. This is clearly saying that will never work for you. If you're guilty of one, you're as guilty as someone who's guilty of them all, although there are sins that have greater consequences. I read one commentator, a couple of them used this as an analogy, which I thought was good. One sin is like when you drop a piece of glass on the ground. One drop of glass shatters the glass, okay? You can drop it again, it'll get more shattered, but it's still shattered glass. So that's one way you can kind of look at it. Let's go back to the text here. Verse 11, he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
And let me just show you a verse. I'll go over to Matthew 5 here real quick. 521. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. But I say to you, and this is Jesus talking, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which means empty-headed, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. So Jesus is saying it's about your heart, okay? It's the condition of your heart. Just by having hate towards somebody, it's like committing murder is what Jesus was saying. So it's the condition of your heart. Verse 12, I'm back over in James. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. That's the law of grace. We're to love one another and act as people who have been saved by God's grace. Remember, we're guilty, we're not perfect, and we shouldn't be judging others when they mess up because we're all messed up. That's what he's saying. We've been justified on the basis of Jesus's righteousness, not on ours. And so when we start casting judgments towards people because of things they do that we don't do, that's typically we see somebody commit a sin that we don't struggle with and we think they're the worst because they have that sin. It's like, I can't believe they do that. I mean, of all things, they do that. Well, they probably don't do some of the stupid things that we do. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So mercy is God doesn't give us what we do deserve. That's what mercy is. Remember what grace is. Grace means God gives us what we don't deserve. We deserve death because we've committed at least one sin. So we're as guilty as if we committed them all. That's grace. Grace is God gives us what we don't deserve. So we've been shown mercy, and we should show mercy to others. And if we don't, it might be a sign that we do not have saving faith. This judgment, let me also just touch base on this. We're all going to be judged. Everybody's going to be judged. But as Christians and as believers, we go before the judgment seat of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let me just read that to you. We've looked at that before, but our judgment is before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not where we're judged for our salvation because our debts have been paid for. When Jesus died, he paid for all of our sin. This will be a judgment for believers that will then determine our rewards in heaven, and it will also determine what roles and responsibilities we will have as we reign with Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's that judgment, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So that's how believers are judged. We're judged on what did we do with the opportunities that Jesus gave us? How did we live our life here? It's not about salvation. We're going to heaven, but it's rewards and responsibilities in heaven. Non-believers are judged at what's called a great white throne judgment, and that's over in Revelation 20, and we've looked at that before. You can go over there and look at it at your convenience. You'll see that non-believers are actually judged. Their names aren't written in the book of life, and therefore they're judged the way they wanted to be judged, 
not on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ because they didn't accept that. They want to be judged by their own righteousness. And other books are open that basically have all their deeds, everything they did in their life, and none of them make it. Okay, no non-believers make it. You can look over in Revelation 20. They're all thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan. None of them make it, but they're judged the way they wanted to be judged. And I've had people ask me, Larry, I don't believe all that. You know, you say God's a loving God. Why would he want to send everybody to hell? And I say, that's exactly right. He's a loving God and he doesn't want to send anybody to hell. That's why he sent his son. He gave you a path. And all you got to do is place your faith in him, and then his righteousness is imparted to you. He's paid your debt. But if you don't want to accept the fact that he's paid your debt, you want to go on your own, that's your decision. That's not his decision. He doesn't want to see you go that way. Okay, so let's continue on. Now we're going to get into the real meat of this chapter 2. I mean, it's all good, but here's where some of the rub comes when people get confused. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? That's the question. Okay, so if you say you have faith, but you have no works, are you saved? This is what James is going to try to answer. And you can see that this is just an empty confession. What James is going to show is this is not saving faith. This is just kind of knowledge and understanding. You might even say, yeah, the gospel's true, but it's not saving faith. You haven't had a change. You haven't had a change of heart. It's just an empty confession. And we're going to see, let me mention it now, and then you'll see when we get down there. He's going to mention that even demons believe in God. Even demons believe that Jesus is God's son. They believe Jesus died and was buried and was raised again. They believe Scripture is God's Word. They believe in a literal heaven and hell. But the thing is, they hate God and they hate Jesus, and they ain't going to heaven, okay? So just having the knowledge of this, he's going to compare non-believers. They're just like Satan's demons. Okay, so let's read on. If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So James is trying to give an illustration of works. And he's been mentioning throughout, as we've read chapter 1 in the prior weeks and chapter 2 today, he's been mentioning evidences of what good works look like. He's been mentioning things that evidence your faith. For instance, let me just walk you back. You'll remember, we've talked about it. In chapter 1, verse 3, he talked about endurance. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 12, he talked about perseverance under trial. He talked about purity of life. In chapter 1, verse 21, he talked about obedience to Scripture. In chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, he talked about compassion towards the poor. In chapter 1, verse 27, He talked about being impartial to people, as we read this morning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. He's going to add control of the tongue when we get over to chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. He's going to talk about humility when we get over in chapter 4. He's going to talk about truthfulness in chapter 4. He's going to talk about patience, which I struggle with in chapter 5. So these are all things that evidence whether you have true saving faith or not. 
If you can demonstrate these things, well then that's evidence of good works. That's evidence of saving faith. That's what he's talking about. So here we are in verse 17. James says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So I know there's religions, particularly the Catholics believe it's faith plus works is what saves you. This is some of what they use for support of that. But that's not what James is talking about. Nowhere in here does James talk about works giving you salvation. James is talking about what is faith, and he's giving you evidence of what true faith is. And remember, both he and Paul, they're not in disagreement. They are both talking about faith, and I'm going to show you some verses where Paul totally agrees with what James is saying here that if you truly have saving faith and you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, as you go through the sanctification process from the time you believe until you die, you're going to have evidence of good works. You're going to have evidence of saving faith. God has created good works for you to live into. So let me show you some of those verses where Paul is going to be saying the exact same thing that we see James saying. They complement one another. They're not in conflict. I'm going to go over to Ephesians and turn over there with me because we're going to look at that. Go over to Ephesians. Just go over to the left. Remember, Ephesians is after Galatians, after 1 Corinthians. Just go over to the left. Ephesians chapter 2. We've looked at this many times. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So Paul is very clear It is by grace we've been saved. It's through our faith. It isn't from any of our works. But look what Paul then goes on to say about works. You will have good works when you have saving faith. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is responsible. It's the Holy Spirit working in our lives to bring about these good works. That's evidence. So even Paul is saying, you'll have good works when you have faith because the Holy Spirit is going to help bring that about. God's already planned for you to have good works. Let me show you some more. Let's go over to Romans 3.20. So go back a little bit more to the left from Ephesians before Corinthians. Romans 3.20. And it says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus." whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, meaning as a payment, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just, meaning Jesus will be the judge, and the justifier, he's the one who paid our debt, of the one who has faith in Jesus." Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? 
No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So there's Paul describing it. You're going to have good works, but it's not you. It comes after your faith. And you're going to see in James that's even going to come out in what James is writing. Let me give you one more on Paul. Just flip the page over to chapter 4. And I'm giving this to you now because James is going to talk about the same thing. This is Abraham I'm in Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. So what he's saying is when you work, you get paid a wage. You get paid for it, okay? It's not given to you as a gift. That's what this favor is. It's given to you because it's owed to you. And he's saying that's not how Abraham got his righteousness. He didn't earn it. It wasn't paid because of something he did. It was reckoned to him God just declared him to be righteous. It wasn't from his works. And it's interesting because we're going to see more about Abraham and James. Remember, in fact, let me just take you over there real quick. Go over to Genesis 15, 6. Go way over to Genesis, first book in the Bible. So if you look at this, 15, 6, it says, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So this is justification by faith. God counted Abraham's faith as the basis upon which to declare Abraham justified. It wasn't anything that Abraham had done. God imputed this righteousness on the basis of Abraham's faith. For instance, this was some people have estimated like 14 years before Abraham was even circumcised. This was years before the law was even given to Moses. So it wasn't because of his works. It wasn't because he was abiding by the law or he went and got circumcised. And by the way, it was maybe 20 years or so, it's been estimated, before he then offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So it wasn't anything that he did. In fact, if you go look at Genesis 12, God bestowed the Abrahamic covenant on him made these promises that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. That was given to him before the law came, before he was circumcised, before he tried to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Let me show you one other verse, Galatians 5, 6. And again, this is Paul speaking, and it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So it's your faith. It isn't anything you do. You can't earn it. And so some of the examples that Paul gave in that are in the Bible, James is going to use those same things to prove the same thing that Paul is saying. Let's go back over to James, verse 19. Here's the demon reference. You believe that God is one, or a better way your translation may say you believe that there is one God. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So that's what I was saying. The demons believe, but that ain't going to get them into heaven. They're going to hell. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire with Satan, even though they have knowledge. Demons believe God exists, but that's not going to get them there. 
belief in the truth without obedience, it's worthless, is what James is saying. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellows, that faith without works is useless? So making a claim that you have faith and then not having any works, you have nothing to bear witness of your claim. That's what he's saying. And now he's going to talk about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, so remember, I showed you that in Genesis 15. That was before he ever offered up Isaac. And what that did, that demonstrated his faith. That was evidence of his faith because he even told his servants as he was taking Isaac out to sacrificing, he told his servants that we're going to be back. We'll be back. So he had faith that they were going to return. Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if he did kill him. He had faith. That's what he had. And by going through that, he was demonstrating the faith that he had. That was evidence of his faith. I think that's Hebrews 11. Yeah, Hebrews 11, the, the great faith chapter. It's Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, you see, it was a test of his faith. It was a test of his faith that we talked about last time to then demonstrate that he had saving faith. It says, when Abraham was tested, offering up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. So Abraham expected God to protect Isaac or bring him back to life or something, but he knew that God had promised him that there was going to be many, many descendants through Isaac, and so he knew that God was going to take care of him. And it says in verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called meaning there's going to be all these descendants from Isaac. Verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type, meaning a type of Jesus Christ. So he had faith. It wasn't the fact that he went and offered Isaac that then he was declared righteous. That was done many years before, before Isaac was even born. I showed you in Genesis 15. So James is using the same illustration that we saw earlier, similar to what even Paul was saying, and in other parts of Scripture. So if you have saving faith, then you're going to have works that then evidence to you, which is why we're being told this. You know, sometimes you might have doubt. You might say, oh gosh, you know, I messed up again. Am I really saved? Well, just look back over your life. James has given us all these different tests that we can use in order to see, do we have true saving faith? That's why he's writing this. So that's Abraham. Now he's going to give another example. Let's go down to verse 25 in James. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So you remember what we're talking about here Remember, there were two men that Joshua had sent out to spy out the promised land to go over into Jericho, and Rahab had faith. She knew what they were up to. She wanted to protect them, and she risked her life in order to protect them from people who wanted to try to kill these messengers from God. 
And so he's describing Rahab that by putting her life out there at risk and protecting these people who were out spying out the land for the Israelites, that was something that demonstrated her faith. And then you look, and Rahab is in the actual line of descent when we were studying that of Jesus. And he says in verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What he's saying is the body without the spirit, probably talking about it's a small s, so it may be breath, but it may be talking about the Holy Spirit. But faith without works is dead because he's saying if you don't ever have anything to manifest to show that you've got faith, saving faith, maybe you don't really have faith. It certainly is ineffective there hasn't been a change. Remember, Jesus was clear that when we become Christians, we're a new creature. We become a new creature, and we've got the Holy Spirit living in us. So there ought to be evidence of that. And when you look back over your life, you ought to see evidence of a change in your life. Now, if you're just a new Christian, yeah, you might not see it immediately. And we all go through our life where we have ups and downs, but it ought to be an upward trajectory over our life as the Holy Spirit continues to chip away things that aren't Christ-like. Now this word justify, the Roman Catholics point to that and they think that means that's what makes you righteous. That it's actually your works that contribute to the receiving of grace and becoming righteous. But that's not what James is talking about. Even by his examples that he used, his illustrations, None of his illustrations are saying, you got to go do this in order to be saved. That's not what James is talking about. And he's writing to Christians who already are saved. Correct. That's a good point. And the other piece on this, just on the, in verse 18, you see, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he's going to get into showing. So do you want to be shown, you foolish person? And then you see faith was active along with his work. You see that a person is justified And so to see the justification, which is the righteousness of God, is evidenced by what they're doing. So he's he's trying to help people. Don't just tell me, oh, I'm saved, and then ignore the person that is poor or show partiality. Say, oh, I'm saved. So therefore, because I'm saved, I then act in a way that doesn't create cognitive dissonance, where like I believe one thing, I do a complete other thing. And just to show that Paul is in total agreement with that concept, flip over to 2 Corinthians 13. It's over to the left. Corinthians is after Acts and Romans. And this is Paul talking. So just like Chris is saying, show me. What Paul is saying here is test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do you have saving faith? Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So they're in agreement. They're not in conflict at all. They're saying the same thing. There ought to be evidence. Okay, I'm going to show you one more verse before I wrap up. I've got so much here. I'm really having to skinny this down for you today, but hopefully this is helpful to you. I'm in Matthew 7. I'm going to begin in verse 21. This is Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So we did all this stuff. We did this stuff. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's many people sitting in our churches, they think they're saved, but there's no evidence of that other than like we started out, just an empty confession. They really haven't dedicated their hearts to God. It's just an empty confession of faith. They're like James described, they're like the demons. Yeah, they believe it's true. Like they're going through the most. Correct, correct. Just like, remember the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, if I remember right. You remember that? We've gone back and looked at that many times. They might be saying his name to please the people around him. Yeah, or it's the cool thing to do. They're infatuated with it at the time. And as we saw in the parable in Matthew 13, the first seed is on hard ground. Satan takes it away immediately. The next two soils, it's either trials and tribulations come or the riches of the world come. In other words, they start becoming self-dependent. They don't need God and they fall away or they get persecuted or something difficult in their life. They lose a loved one. They go, I don't need that God. So none of those people make it. It's not saving faith. But what's interesting is the fourth seed, I'm reading from Matthew 13, verse 23 right now. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. So what that's saying is, if you got true saving faith, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to have good works. There's going to be evidence of your faith. And we aren't compared to other people. We're compared to the opportunities God gave us. Like, I'm not going to be compared to Billy Graham or Chris. They're going to be in a way different place than me. But there ought to be evidence. And so let me just sum up what we've studied today. God has shown mercy to us as believers. We've been given so much through God's grace. And so we've got to be impartial to others. And he loves even the unbelieved. He wants them to come to faith. And he wants to use us as his instrument to bring that about. Saving faith, it should always produce good works through obedience to God, compassion to others. I will point this out. There are some commentators. There are actually some people that I have the utmost respect for and they're believers who say, well, there are some examples of you can be saved and not have any works. And an example of that could be like the person on the cross next to Jesus who placed his faith in Jesus right at the last minute and then died. He had his salvation. He probably isn't going to get much of a reward or have many opportunities in heaven. Although you can't twist that around, he was sort of going after the other criminal and defending Jesus. Maybe that was his one good work. So maybe he did manifest that. He didn't have a lot of time left. He didn't have a lot of opportunity. Children, as I've talked about before, they're saved based on my reading of 2 Samuel 12. If they die, they really hadn't done any good works. So perhaps, but I would just not rely on that. I think what James is trying to tell us is for the vast majority, your life ought to demonstrate your faith. There ought to be evidence of that. Larry, I think maybe another way to say this that might be more complicated, but it's election or salvation election equals faith plus works. In other words, you get elected, saved, and then you have faith and you have works. And so I think we always want to put the faith and works part first as if, like, 
I just got conjured up enough faith to believe. I'm going to believe it or I'm going to do something. And that's not it. Even the faith is a gift. And so that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you've been given faith, that's mean you've been elected first and that produces faith and works. And that makes it way more clear when you look at James is it's like, oh, I've been saved, so therefore I have faith and works. And so they're like two sides of the same coin. Right. And where the Roman Catholics and others get off course is they view it as in order to have salvation, you've got to have faith plus works. So they put faith and works together on the front end end, that if you've got faith, but you haven't done all these things, you haven't been baptized, you haven't done all the various things that they require you to do, then you're not going to heaven. That's not in the gospel. That's not the gospel. And even James, through his examples that he's giving, that's not what Abraham did. That's not what Rahab did. You're not going to find that. So it is a flawed view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just wanted you to be clear on that because you will encounter people that when you're giving your testimony or talking about faith, they'll say, yeah, but what about James? James said you got to do a bunch of stuff. And the thing is that plays into our flesh because we want to contribute to it. It's like, I don't want you giving it to me. I want to earn it. Yeah, I did something. You know, I did something here. I'm not totally worthless. Yeah, that's good. You know, when you try to reconcile James and Paul, just remember they were addressing two different issues. I heard one commentator give a great description. They're both standing back to back defending faith. One's facing one group who is trying to say it's faith plus works, the Judaizers, that you got to have faith in Jesus Christ, but you still have to do all the stuff, which is sort of like the Catholics. You still have to do all this stuff. So Paul was defending faith from that group, and James is defending faith from the people who think, yeah, I kind of believe that's true, so I'm good, and I'm going to live my life however I want. So they're both defending faith, but nowhere does James ever say, your good works are what give you your salvation. It's not in here. Okay, so hopefully we helped you understand this part or made it more confusing. (laughs) How do you figure out the practical application of this? Because if if you read this, if you say, okay, if I have true saving faith, that should enable good works. For example, I should be able to love my neighbor and I should be able to not show partiality. But me personally, I utterly fail it. Anytime I try to do something like that, it's just a reminder of how bad I am at doing stuff like that. So then you could get back in the cycle of, well, do I even have saving faith if I can't love my neighbor all the time? Mm -hmm. So how do you wrap your head around the practical application of this? So the good news is the fact that when you do mess up, you're feeling guilty about it, that's evidence. The Holy Spirit is convicting you, okay? So you're feeling a conviction, and at the same time you're saying, which is exactly what Jesus is trying to do through that screw-up that you just had, trying to make you realize, I am a messed-up sinner. There is no way I can do this on my own. And that's when you then say, Holy Spirit, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I got to depend on you. Show me that exit ramp. You remember that verse that we've talked about? Help me. Help change me. Change my heart. I can't do this on my own. I need you. And so the more you then pray about it and the more you ask the Holy Spirit to convict you and make you more aware of the exit ramp before it comes, that's all part of the process until one day That same thing comes along that's been tripping you up and you jump right off the exit ramp and now you're on a new highway 
and there's going to be more trouble. There's going to be something else you're going to struggle with. People who don't have faith don't contemplate that question. And then on the flip side, let's say you ignore that conviction. Well, then Romans 1 says that he'll give you over to that in, in a sense like he won't convict you anymore. And so if you're not convicted by anything, that should freak you out. That should be like, oh gosh, that should be a big... We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Most of us run around self-deceived because we don't feel conviction, because we've surrounded ourselves by people who tell us how great we are, or just you know our own thoughts aren't examining that. The importance and, of community. Yeah, that's why community is really huge. But to your, to your point, so one thing I love that you were saying is like, how do I know that I'm saved? The very fact that you're wrestling with it is evidence that you have salvation. But at the same time, say fan into flame is what you know Paul would tell Timothy, that faith by then acting on that which God has convicted you of. And that's how you're going to feel the evidence of justification of what Paul just talked about here. You'll be shown that your faith is genuine. Aren't we describing sanctification? Sure, yeah. So part of that, That's part of the process. Part of it. Okay. Right, yeah. I mean, I guess what we're trying to wrap our head around is what does justification look like? And that's the point at which God declares a sinner righteous on the basis of grace by means of faith. Whereas sanctification is where God makes the believer righteous on the basis of grace by means of faith. So it's the same methodology that God uses in declaring a sinner to be righteous because he is in no way on his own righteous. But then from that point forward, it's that always that sort of wrestling with what I believe is one thing. My life isn't operating like that. Am I going to repent and align my life and my faith? And I think that's the, what James is saying here is align those two things. True faith will show through good works. That's what James is saying. It's a side effect. With all medications, there are side effects. Uh, With faith, the side effect is works. There you go. And in Mississippi, we call it the I can't help it. I mean, Larry can't help but love his wife. That's right. Trey can't help but love his wife. In spite he, of myself. In, in spite of who he is. When Chris makes a mistake, when Lane makes a mistake, mm. when Greg makes a mistake mm. with their spouses and they know that they've spoken out of turn, there is something inside that Justin cannot sleep. Mm. He cannot go on to the next task that is in his life. Brad says, I need to go and apologize. Mm. I've done wrong. Mm. It will not let you rest. It will not allow you to continue to move forward. That is God. That's saving faith. Saying, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's it good. Is. Isn't there also an immersion piece to this too? Because yeah. God becomes a bigger part of your life. Yeah, the more that you're in prayer, the more that you're in scripture, the more that you're in community with other believers, yes, all that is a vehicle to draw closer to God and to begin to live your life the way God intended. Okay, I know I went a little long today. Hopefully this discussion helped you better understand James, and I'm hoping that you go away seeing that James and Paul are not in conflict at all. I hope that's what you see as the takeaway and then start looking for those things in your life that are evidence of saving faith because that's where we get encouraged. It's when you actually see that. I encourage you to reflect on it at night before you go to bed. I've told you that. Reflect on where you saw Jesus today and reflect on where you were convicted, where you messed up, and say, you know, that's evidence of saving faith. Thank you. I'm encouraged. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast 
and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.